0: Thank you, Pastor Stephen, important for us to be praying. Thank you guys for that time together. If you will, turn with me to Leviticus. We'll jump right in here to some Leviticus. There's just not many good segues from an intense, important time of prayer to purification after childbirth in Leviticus chapter 12. So uh, we'll just head that way if that's all right with everybody and be looking on together. Thankful, I do want to commend in every way that we can uh, the Go Gathering that's coming up in a few weeks, that Saturday night. Um, If you are one here who, who contributes to the ministry here at Taylor's First, then you are a part of what we do around the world in reaching the gospel. For our church gives some 13.5% right off the top directly to our Southern Baptist causes. And uh, especially most of that actually goes towards our International Mission Board to try to reach uh, the world with the gospel who's doing great work the prayer points that Stephen brought up or some from the International Mission Board be praying for Israel and some of our workers there and uh, that weekend will be a special weekend that I hope you will take advantage of as we uh, gather with the leadership of the International Mission Board to have uh, the Vice President for Global Advancement here is a, a going to be a tremendous blessing and you'll enjoy him. Um, so be looking forward to that. Just a lot going on in the life of our church. Be praying for our, our college students who, I don't know if you have noticed this, but our college students meet on Wednesday night, and they, they don't start meeting until we go home. In other words, past my bedtime. But they, uh, they have been meeting on Wednesday night, and they met for a long time up in the loft, over here on the other side, but they have quickly this year outgrown that space. And so they've had to move across the street to our ministry center. So on Wednesday night, you'll notice them out there playing games as you're leaving and everything because they had too many to fit upstairs. And so it's been a huge blessing for us. They are going this weekend. Um, taking a retreat this weekend to go to Coastal Carolina, working with our BCM there and three other churches, so it's four churches, college ministry going, going down there to work this weekend with, with the ministry on the campus of Coastal Carolina down at Myrtle Beach, trying to share the gospel with some of the students there. Exciting times! I think there's 81 of them going on that trip together. So just want to keep praying for Alex as he's leading them. And just that work that they are doing—that's a—it's a great ministry. Getting college students motivated to reach college students is 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 a, a, a tremendous blessing and a wonderful thing to watch. So we want to keep praying, praying for them. Uh, turn to Leviticus. Leviticus. Uh, I'm I'm dead serious now, so don't laugh. So we're going to get through uh, four chapters tonight. Because I just, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't want to stay here long. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll get into some of these chapters and you'll think, my goodness, there is some of this that is rated 17 plus in these passages. And when I say rated 17 plus, that means I'm not going to read it out loud. You know what I'm saying? Y'all can read it for yourself. What we're going to do is we're going to discuss, as we always have done, the big picture main principles that it is teaching for us so that we can understand the application and what it's for. The more I read Leviticus and the more I'm studying it, the more I recognize there are many things here that we just aren't sure about. Commentators, people all around just aren't sure about exactly what they mean. But then there are things there is plenty here that we are positive about that gives us clear direction as to what we're doing. So if you can, just to to be clear, let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's start in a place we can read, right? Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, I mean, the book of Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus are dripping all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's talking about the priesthood, it's talking about the sacrifices, it's talking about what's needed. And in reality, I'm realizing more and more how much I need to know what's written in Leviticus before I can understand what really Hebrews is ultimately getting at in every detail, right? Now, understand me when I say this. We believe in the fancy words, the perspicuity of Scripture. It's easy to understand. We, we know that Scripture's easy to understand. But also, the great thing about Scripture is the more you read it, the more you recognize that it teaches and you know and you get into it. People all the time, somebody said to me, why don't you just skip to the book of Revelation? We all just want to know about Revelation. I had one pastor who told me he couldn't get his Wednesday night started and people wouldn't come. And the first thing I said was, you're probably a lousy teacher. And then, I didn't say that. That's a joke. That was seeing how how y'all were listening. But then I said, well, why don't you just announce to the church you're going to teach through Revelation and see what happens? He did. And they showed up. And he taught one time, and then he started to teach something else, and it didn't come back. But he did. They, people want to know about that. You know what I'm saying? But did you do you know that the book of Revelation has more quotations and references in it to the Old Testament than any uh, the rest of the New Testament combined? Because it's pointing. It's it's not a book that's just. It's tying up everything. It's like reading the last chapter before you read the rest of the book. My point is. The more we read of Scripture, the more we understand even what we want to know of Scripture from the New Testament. The more we read of the Old Testament, the more we understand it. The more it teaches us, the more it shows it. If you really want to know Revelation, read the Old Testament and get to it, right? It's tying up all of those loose ends that we're wondering about and it's bringing them together. And Hebrews is doing that. Jesus is our great high priest, Jesus is our ultimate and final sacrifice, and Jesus is our king who reigns on the throne. Hebrews is pointing all of this out. And so as he's getting to this, already we've gone through the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Already we've talked about how you can draw near to Christ, and already we've seen all that. And now we're living in light of what Jesus has done, and it tells us in chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with that famous passage, Therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Y'all know, right? It talks about discipline, how he disciplined those he loves and how he loves us. And then it says in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his love for us, he's saying, get up, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may be put out of joint, may not be put out of joint. I I have my glasses in my hand trying to read it. (laughs) May not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become Defiled, That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words may the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, and to the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet one more time I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. Now, in light of what we've been studying in Exodus and Leviticus, hopefully you can see some things that are popping out there. One, he's talking about Mount Sinai. Remember when the fire came down and they said don't speak to us anymore? Remember? He was talking about Mount Sinai here in Hebrews 12. He's talking about the blood of a new sacrifice that's ushering us into a new kingdom, right? A blood of a new sacrifice that's ushered us into a new kingdom. And he's pointing us to the one who has brought us there. And he says, strive for peace and without holiness, no one sees the Lord. All of these things are dripping with this language of Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus, And so the call for us as New Testament believers, as believers in Christ, is the same call, I believe, that was there for Israel in Leviticus. The call was, be holy for I am holy. The call was to pursue after the Lord in his new kingdom. Be holy for I am holy. Ultimately, here in light of all that Jesus has done, The call for us is to pursue after holiness and recognize what holiness is. Holiness is the setting apart of those who've been called out, right? Holiness is the pursuit after purity. In fact, it even mentions these things when he he tells us that we're not to put out of joint what, what, what may be healed. In other words, we're to be whole, not broken. We're to be made whole, not broken. We're to be sexually moral, not sexually immoral, All of those things come out of Leviticus, of what holiness means. It's it's figurative language to teach us what it means to be after holiness, to be whole, to be made whole, to be pure, to be made pure. All of that is coming out of that. And I just read that at first to to put us into the framework as we go back here to, to Leviticus chapter 12. We have three things that are happening here. Really, I mean, three things together. One, we have purification after childbirth, that's mentioned. We have laws about leprosy in chapter 13, and then laws for how you cleanse yourself from leprosy in chapter 14. And then the great chapter 15 that I, I probably would advise you not to read as a family devotion with your young children. But of course, read it together, uh, read it in your own study. It may have, you can read it. I mean, it's the Bible, but it may have some questions. But chapter 15, laws about bodily discharges. So why are all these in here? Why are these laws, why are these things mentioned? Chapter starting back in Chapter 11, what we discussed last week with the, with the food, the diet laws and how you're to live, what's kosher and not kosher, what's common or, un, or, or not common, right? What's clean or unclean, starting there in chapter 11 and then going through chapter 15. Really what we see here is the Israelites in their pursuit of holiness in everyday life. So... If you look back, chapter 11, verse 45. I mentioned this verse to you as the center of the book, really. Chapter 11, verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Starting there, I'm the Lord. He's identifying himself, Yahweh, the one who spoke to Moses in the wilderness, the one who identified himself as the great I am. That's me. So I'm the one that spoke to Moses. I'm the one. That saved you and redeemed you, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that's where it begins. It begins not with our works to earn God saving us or redeeming us. It begins with God saving us and redeeming us when we were in slavery and bondage. So it says, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So he is the Lord who has redeemed us from slavery and bondage out of Egypt so that he may be with us. Dwell with us, ushering us into his family, his life, his place, so that he may be with us and dwell with us. Therefore, you shall therefore be holy, for I'm holy. The call to holiness is in light of who God is and what he has done. Remember that phrase, who God is and what he has done. Though that's an important understanding in Scripture. uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul says, what do we need to know to be saved, right? We need to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, right? That's how you're saved. You confess who God is, Jesus, Lord, and you believe what he has done, been resurrected for you, right? Y'all see what I'm saying? Who God is and what he has done. We put it like this in fancy pastor speak. That in order to be saved, you have to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done for you. And so that's how salvation comes. That's what the gospel is. Let me tell you about the one who died for you. the, The son of God who came, died for you in your place and rose again. Who he is and what he has done. And so ultimately that's what we see even here in Leviticus 11 45. My, my point is it's not far off from what this isn't far off from us, right? This isn't like so far distant that this is this is useless to us. This is vitally important because we find salvation the same way. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God redeemed us and saved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? And now we find salvation by believing in who he is, Jesus is Lord, and what he has done, been raised from the dead for our behalf. And so ultimately, because of who he is and what he has done for us, our response is holiness. Our response is to pursue him with obedience and holiness. That's the proper response. Does everybody get what I'm saying? That's the proper response. So the food diet laws, the purification after childbirth, the laws about leprosy, the laws about bodily discharges are all laws concerning our pursuit after holiness in everyday life, right? So he's redeemed them, called them to himself, He's dwelling with them as they built this tabernacle there. The Lord God is dwelling with them. And God says, here's what it takes for a holy God to dwell with an unholy people. Here's what must happen. You have to have the sacrificial system. We saw those sacrifices early. And now you have to do some things. You have to do some things whenever sin, sin comes in. You have to do some things to pursue after holiness, right? So, what are these things and what, what's happening here? I'm going to try to explain them from a high level. First, laws and purification after childbirth. God is associated with life, not death. I got that? God is associated with life and really here when I say this, life and purity, not death. Life and purity, not death. Now, what does this have to do? He says to us, the Lord spoke to Moses, of course, so this is God's word coming to Moses. This chapter, by the way, I have written in my Bible right here. This chapter has baffled many. So I got it all figured out and I'm going to tell you what it is. Written here, God is speaking to Moses. This is God's word. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male, see, I'm I'm reading it. I said I wasn't going to read it because I might say something here. Uh, bear child, then she shall be unclean seven days at the time of her, see there, here we go, menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. It's getting into childbirth, what happens? If you have a male child, you are, either way, childbirth happens and the the, the, the uh, wife, the woman is considered unclean. Now, whenever what they're talking about with unclean and clean is who has the privileges of coming into worship. Does that make sense to everybody? Only those who have been purified have the privilege of coming into worship. So who has the privilege of coming into worship? He's saying that when a baby is born, when it's a male son, 40 days there has to be a cleansing period. You have seven days, the first seven days. On the eighth day, the baby is circumcised. And then 33 days more and then there is a cleansing period. When a female is born, it's 80 days if a girl, y'all don't get offended at me, that's the Bible. 80 days, 14 days of deep, their, what it's saying, cleansing, and then the remaining 66 days. Many believe the difference between the female and the male is because of the act of circumcision. In the act of circumcision itself is a cleansing process. And so when the male is circumcised on the eighth day, it brings that down to half of that time, if you will. So that's the only distinction we can ultimately get. So we see that difference in there in circumcision. Now, notice a couple things here. Uh, As that happens on the verse six, when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. The issue here ultimately is loss of blood, right? And so what we see in Scripture, we've already referenced this and looked to it, the idea of loss of blood. The loss of blood points towards death. You lose blood, you're pointing towards death. And what we what we recognize here is while this moves towards death, a movement away death is a movement away from God, therefore considered unclean. And that which moves towards life is considered clean. So ultimately, the act here and the symbolism is the recognition that even in death, when the baby's born, the womb has to die within. And ultimately, here, during that time of that death of the womb, the woman is considered unclean because moving towards death is moving away from God. When she is made whole again, you move towards life. That's ultimately the understanding. Now, I want to I I go back and say a few things. This is not just the sinful action of the woman that's in play here. That's not what's saying. There's not assuming there's some sinful action. Remember Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 when Satan entered the garden, when temptation came and they ate of that fruit of the tree and sin entered in, there was immediate reaction. There was immediate issues, right? Death came. Remember the what was said, if you eat of that tree of the garden you will surely die. Well, Satan tried to say, You won't surely die. You'll know as much as God. Boom. And he even may have seemed like he was justified in saying that because as soon as they eat, did they fall over dead? No. But what happened as soon as they eat? Death came. As soon as they ate the fruit of that tree, death started, right? As soon, in some sense, we can say while we all grow and we hit our prime, my prime was about two months when I was roughly 20 years old. That's when I met Allison. She agreed to marry me. And then after that, it's been downhill, she can tell you. So I hit my prime at just the right time. Two months, lasted about two months. But we recognize even when birth enters in, what happens? Death begins, right? The clock begins ticking because we're all going towards death. And so ultimately, what's said here is because of the curse, because of sin entering in, what was said to the woman through childbirth, right? And it will be painful to you. In other words, the pain and sorrow of childbirth, the heartache of even childbirth, the difficulty of childbirth is a testimony To the sinfulness that has entered into the world. And some of y'all may say, I'm not a woman. Let's make that clear. But I don't, and I'm not even gonna talk about some of these issues because I know I am no expert. 25 years married in November. And see, I've learned something. But what the point is, there are effects of sin all around us. And what you have here is how do we deal with those effects of sin in our life, right? How do we make ourselves holy? Because not just the sin we commit, but the effects of sin that we live with every day in our body. In our body. I mean, what are some of the effects of sin? Disease, right? Death, you know, muscle pain. Y'all know what I'm talking about a little bit. He gave us Advil, but that doesn't last forever. There's effects of sin you have to deal with. And so here, what the Lord is saying, when these things come into the camp, when they come into our life, there will be times that you have to be set apart to deal with that sin to be made right again, to be made right again in your pursuit every day of holiness. By the way, there's a beautiful statement here that that comes at the end of this chapter. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons Throughout Leviticus, the Lord makes provision for those who aren't not wealthy, and it's 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 actually kind of it's actually beautiful, you know. Like the Lord is saying, I, I His grace is seen in the fact that if you can't afford a lamb, I understand. I'm not going to hold that against you. Bring two turtle doves. Do y'all know what sacrifice Luke tells us Mary made after the birth of Jesus? Two turtle doves that she brought to bring those two after the birth of Jesus there. I want to make a statement here about chapter 12 too before I move on and try to get the big picture in a minute. But, but it's not only a pursuit after holiness. There's also been studies done on all of these passages talking about the nature of hygiene itself. Now recognize the kindness and goodness of God as he's dealing with this issue of blood, death, how to promote life in the midst of it. You you recognize that. But also, this is long before much of the modern technology with medicine has come into play. And what we have learned is... That time period after birth actually protects the woman and helps her to heal and and helps her to get healthier again. And we've learned that and the Lord is putting that in here for his people for not just their holiness and pursuing after life, but also for their hygiene and their health as well. Just as we talked about last week with the food laws, there are many things that that we know now about animals that we don't eat because of some sort of disease they may carry or some sort of thing. Many believe that that's part of that hygiene. The Lord was protecting his people from eating something that could kill them. It's the same way here that this is actually for the health of the mother as well as for the pursuit of the holiness and the kindness of God, and the kindness of God. Next, you see, if you have God is associated with life, purity, not death. We see next, God is associated with life and wholeness, not death and defect, ultimately. We see here, leprosy, leprosy is loosely understood as skin conditions. Tazarat is, I think, is how you pronounce it. Here, what, what is it? Uh, modern day, we think of leprosy, right? We, we, we think we have it. What, by the way, there is a, a colony that I have had the privilege of ministering. I think Allison's been there with me as well in, in India, a leper colony that is there. The colony comes together because leprosy, while it is not a fast, uh, transferable disease. It is communicable, right? So you, it can be passed on. It's a bacteria that they call leprosy. It can be passed on that eats away the flesh. And so you'll go, What's what's uh, what's sad is you'll go to these colonies where they put them all together because they don't want it to pass on to the others. And you'll see these adults, and I've got pictures on my phone, I can show you, of adults Worshipping God, and they have no fingers. They clap with, with just their palms because the, the disease has eaten it away. And, and uh, I remember preaching at the leper colony. I'll tell you all the story because I like it. I remember, and I'm just trying to get through this passage. I remember preaching at the leper colony one time, and my, my, my translator was not there. And I'm like, I can't speak. It's time for me to preach. They have sang, and it's beautiful. And now they're asking me to say a word. And I'm looking around, and I don't, I'm the only one in the room that knows English. And, and and so I'm going, I don't know how to do it. And I'm looking for my interpreter, and I'm looking around. I can't even tell him I don't know where he is. Until one man gets up, and he points down the street. And my interpreter was a little fellow. We call him Prasad. And Prasad had a leper who had no feet. And no hands. He was carrying him on his back, coming down the street, and then he brings him into the church, kind of plops him down right there on the front row, turns around sweating like crazy, and said, Now we're ready, sir. That's hard to preach after. You know what I'm saying? Like, my goodness, man, this is incredible. So there's that. That is what we refer to, by the way, as Hansen's disease. It's called Hansen's disease. We generally refer to it as leprosy. Most dermatologists who have studied, by the way, Leviticus 13, do not believe what the Bible is talking about as Hansen's is actually modern day Hansen's disease. They don't necessarily know what it is. In fact, there was a study done of dermatologists and doctors looking at the the nature of what's described in Leviticus chapter 13, and they say there's no modern disease. We would even know how to diagnose this, right? And so many of them don't know. So we're not sure what it may be. It could be many things. Tazarot means white or flaky, if you will, the idea of skin being dry and falling off. When, when we read about it with Miriam, y'all remember in Numbers chapter 12, in Numbers chapter 12, Moses had done it, but Miriam, Miriam sins against God. Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. And so God puts them with leprosy. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, Moses' sister. Like snow. Do y'all see that? So the imagery, leprous like snow. Her skin began to basically die. Began to basically die like snow. Aaron turned toward Mary and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, "Oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. In other words, Miriam is described as one who's dying right before their very eyes like a stillborn baby. And so leprosy is the idea of whatever skin disease it may be, it's the idea that death is taking over the body. It's taking over the body. Whatever skin disease that may be. And it describes it here of what it may look like. It's different from modern day, as I said, modern day, what modern day uh, dermatologists call Hansen's disease. At the same time, many people believe it carries with it so many different things. In other words, it's an umbrella term for many different skin diseases that are eating away flesh and eating it away. So, all that's fun to talk about too. In the how does it come? We, we'll, we'll get to this. When, when you study the first five books, there's the Jewish rabbis had their own commentary, ancient commentary about the first five books, and it's called the Midrash. And so in that Midrash, they considered leprosy a plague from God. And in that, there's 10 causes. And listen to these causes. Idolatry, promiscuity, murder, Profaming God's name, blaspheming God's name, robbing the community, stealing, arrogance, gossip, and grudging. Y'all know grudging is literally giving somebody the evil eye. That's grudging. Some of y'all need to think about that. <laughs> right now, as you're looking at me, talking about this. So ultimately, he's saying here that this leprosy was a skin disease and many of the Jews saw it as a plague that was put on them by God. And they're not necessarily wrong. In fact, all of these things from the Midrash have come from other places in Scripture, do y'all remember Naaman who had leprosy, right? But he was, a, he was a man of God who had leprosy and God healed him from his leprosy and then uh, Gehazi argued about it, got mad about it. And what did God do because of Gehazi who gave grudgingly to him? He put leprosy on Gehazi and he lived with it. We just saw it with Miriam who challenged Moses and went against God and God did what? He gave her leprosy. We see it also in in 2 Chronicles 26 with King Uzziah who went against God in his arrogance and pride and he woke up with leprosy. We've seen it before in many other places, but we also see leprosy, we see it as God using it as, as, as some sort of curse or punishment for sin. We also see leprosy as simply a sign, like Naaman where they have it and God uses it for his glory as he heals him. Or like Job, remember Job has had gotten leprosy simply as a test for him to see as Satan had come to God and, and said, he'll, he'll deny you. And God said, do what you like to his body. Gave him leprosy to see if he would do it. Those things have come as tests. So we see them as sin sin and put on there because of sin, as a judgment because of sin. And we see it as also signs in scripture used. This is why... In the New Testament, whenever the man who was blind from birth came to Jesus, you remember, and what did the Pharisees say? Who sinned that this may come? Much of this, they assumed that these things were done because of some sort of sinfulness. And many times in Scripture, many times in Scripture, I believe that's true. We see that as the case. God does these things because of sinfulness. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar grew out hair and 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 long little toenails and ate grass like a cow in the field, right? To show him because of sinfulness of his arrogance, he's going to humble him. So in many of these cases, we've seen that true. So what? What is it then for us? One, I believe. Clearly, as we said, God is associated with life, not with death. Leprosy and all that that entails was the idea of death entering in, coming on the skin, taking over even our bodies, death taking over. And so therefore, you are considered unclean when that happens. You are not allowed because death. God is pointing us towards life, not towards death. You are considered unclean and not allowed to come into worship. And sometimes that was because of sinfulness. Sometimes it was just as a sign to test faithfulness, to pursue after God and other things. We see those two things in action. What that means for us is we are not allowed. And hear me when I say this. We are not allowed to speculate as to whatever disease, sin, or thing that's going on in anybody's life, whether that's a judgment of God of them or not. That is not our role or our job. Does that make sense to everybody? I know people that does it, does it. I know people that do it. And when they do it, they're sitting there thinking, uh-huh, see there, the Lord done judged them for being mean to me one day. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We're not allowed to make that. That's God's work. He does it. And we only know about it because of his revealed word that he has given us. God, who is sovereign over all things, holds everything in his hand. That's his work, not ours. And what we recognize is not all of those things are judgment, but they are here because of what? Sin. The effects of sin go into disease, go into All things with the body that we have to deal with. Sin entering in gave doctors a job. Trying to figure out how to slow down death and deal with disease and deal with those pains. Trying to figure that out of how to help in those ways. These are things that move towards death. That's what leprosy was. Moving towards death, not towards life. And if you're moving towards death and have that on on display, then you can't come into Worship, You can't come into worship. Now God in chapter 14 gives all of his ways to purify yourself from leprosy. Notice uh, a couple things I just want to point out. One, God can heal and purify the leper. And purification over leprosy is about life and death, about life and death. The image here for us then, leprosy represents this disease of the skin that's pointing towards death. It is a picture of death and sin itself. It's a picture of death and sin itself. And so ultimately, this is why the Pharisees had such a hard problem with Jesus going to the lepers. Because... For the Pharisees and the Midrash, if you will, those guys were sinners being judged by God. And Jesus says the opposite, right? Whatever you do to the least of these, you're doing unto me. Jesus says the opposite. I want to get to what Jesus does in a minute. But the point is, Jesus can take the leper and make them clean. He can take them and make them clean. In fact, that is David's prayer in Psalm 51. After David sins against God with Bathsheba, what does David cry out in Psalm 51? His language is the language of cleansing and cleansing rites from leprosy. In Psalm 51, he says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's talking about Leviticus 14. How are we to be cleansed? If we are purged, if we are washed, if we are cleansed before God, then we can enter back into his worship. So David himself is taking his sinfulness and equating it with the same idea of having leprosy and being separated from God because of it. And he's saying, God, wash me and cleanse me. God, wash me and cleanse me. In other words, it's a picture not of our outside, but our inside sinfulness before God. What disqualifies us from entering in, as Jesus will say, is not on the outside of us, but what comes out of our heart. So this leprosy becomes a picture of what our problem is inwardly. What our problem is inwardly. Do do y'all remember the parable of the ten lepers? The parable of the ten lepers. It's in Luke chapter 17, I think. I'm just... Saying that off the top of my head. So if it's right, then hey, you don't have to stone me. Um, I was right. If it's wrong, then who knows? Maybe it's not, though. Yep, Luke 17. Look at there, huh? Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Part of leprosy was for them to separate themselves out from the people, not to bring that into the camp. Separate themselves out. Set them at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. As they went, they were cleansed. When you read Leviticus chapter 13, when someone has the spots on their body that begin the process of leprosy, what were they to go do? They were to go see the priest. The priest would make the judgment on whether or not they're clean or unclean to come in to worship. He would look at it and he would make the judgment on these things. And so Jesus is saying, you lepers, go see the priest and see what they tell you see what the priest tells you, and on their way, what happens? They're cleansed. Jesus has the power to cleanse lepers, to make them whole again. On their way, they are cleansed. Notice what it says, by the way. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Here, Out of the 10 lepers, one of them comes back and says what? Thank you and worships Christ. Ultimately, it's not the healing of the body that matters finally. It's the healing of the soul. That's Jesus' whole point. Leprosy is leprosy. I can heal that. What matters is your own heart. Will that be cleansed? And the testimony here is, While one of them, the outward leprosy was cleansed, it caused his inward soul to be cleansed to come back to Christ to give him thanks. The other nine, we don't know what happened to them. We don't know what happened. Ultimately, it's about our inward heart pursuing after God. And God is not associated with death. He wants us to be whole inwardly, inwardly. Cleansing happens When the cleansing happens, blood is added to make it right. You'll see those things. I'm going to move on. Chapter 15, laws about bodily discharges. Mm -hmm. God is associated with life, not death, and faithfulness. So if you think of it in the first one, God associated with life and purity, right? Being being pure. God associated with life and wholeness. God associated with life and faithfulness. And this chapter is really all about faithfulness in sexuality, being faithful in sexuality. And so ultimately, what is teaching us is a few things that I want you just to note. These laws that are put here about bodily discharges promote health and self-control. Health and self-control. That's what they're promoting. If you're reading, it's not causing you, you're not reacting. You must control your body, even your sexual emotions. They must be under control. They cannot overpower you. They cannot overwhelm you. They cannot run you. They seek oftentimes to, to run your life. And by the way, we all know this when we look at our society today that has taken the issue of sex and made it the primary way that we even identify ourselves, right? The number one way it is taking sex and allowed it to go out of control beyond the bounds that it was meant for away from what it does. And it becomes our very identity. We identify ourselves by our sexuality. That's not what the scriptures are saying. We look at this and we recognize that this is promoting health for us in our life and with our body, and self-control and how we use it. We do not let it dominate us. We are in charge, and we practice self-control. By the way, the spirit that God gives us, that puts it within us, as Paul tells Timothy, is what? A spirit of love, patience, and self-control, not of timidity. And so ultimately, self-control is what we must practice. 15 is telling us that we control the body. We must practice self-control when it comes to sexuality. Second, it separates sex from worship. This is important. Even when we get into acts, even all the way back, different cultures and different places have worshipped their gods with the sex act itself. And God is saying that's not a part of worship. He's teaching them that this is even a private issue. For when we come to this, we recognize that they weren't to go to the priest. When it came to the childbirth, they're to go to the priest and say, can I come in now? When it comes to leprosy, they're to go to the priest and say, can I welcome in? But when it comes to these things, this was a private issue that was dependent upon you and God to deal with themselves. You don't take this to the priest in chapter 15. You don't take it to the priest. In other words, it separates it out from worship. This isn't to be brought to the house of God. It separates it out. This isn't a part of worship. Third, they are symbolic, as you read this, of death. And God is life. The way you read it and when you read it, it's symbolic of death, the loss of life in the sex act. Therefore, you see God is about life. And then fourth, It shows impurity before a holy God. God promotes purity, not impurity. God promotes purity, not impurity. If you read, in fact, if you read chapter 15, verse 18, I'll let y'all read that on your own. If you read 15, verse 18, this recognizes and places sex between the relationship of a husband and a wife in this passage. That's the center of it. And it places it there in the sense of even when they do it, they are considered unclean for the evening. For the evening. God is associated with life and faithfulness. There's ways to be made right. Look down in verse 25. If a woman has discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her. Menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Wow. Y'all remember Luke chapter 8? There was a woman when Jesus entered into the town, and she had the issue of blood, it says, for 12 years. In this passage, when the issue is over, you cleanse yourself and you're welcome back in. This woman had had it for 12 years. And the text even says she spent all of her money on doctors trying to be able to fix it. And remember what she did? She just reached out and touched the hem of the garment. When you read that passage, what did it say? Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. When she touched the hem of the garment, y'all remember what happened, obviously. She was made clean, not Jesus made unclean. She was made clean. You see, Jesus has come to reverse the curse of sin. All of these things from childbirth to leprosy to bodily discharges are all the effects of the fall and how sin has entered in. And Jesus has come to reverse that curse. Y'all remember what happened? Y'all remember what happened when Jesus went to the cross and they? he had said, I'm the king of kings. Y'all remember that? And they said, we'll see a king. And they took a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they shoved it down. Y'all remember that? I remember a a, a singer a few years back, probably 15 years ago, in some effort to be cute in some way on Time Magazine, put a crown of thorns on his head and wore it in saying of this same idea of identifying with Jesus. But what he doesn't understand is he is not qualified or worthy to wear even the crown of thorns. Because that crown of thorns represents the fact that Jesus took the curses that sin brought in in Genesis chapter 3 and he wore them on his head to turn them around and reverse the curse so that those who are made unclean can be made clean. Those who were impure can be made pure. Those who were separated from God can be brought close because of their lack of wholeness. He makes us whole again. He does it all and he will do it all for his children. And we got people in this room who long for the day that God makes us whole again. And what we know as believers is that day is coming. He may in his grace heal us here, but more important than healing here is that in eternity we will know no such thing of not being whole, for he will make us whole. And just like he made that woman clean again. He makes us clean. And just like he has reversed the curse to say the one born of a woman who took under the law to reverse it for us, as Galatians 4 tells us, he has reversed that curse. Now we live not having to worry about the purification laws after childbirth, not having to worry about the purification laws after we have leprosy, not having to worry about the purification laws after bodily discharge because Jesus has reversed the curse and he is the one who has made us clean and welcomes us into the worship of the one true and living God. We don't come in to worship him on our own accord. We don't enter into heaven We don't enter into worship because of what we have done. Because in and of myself, I am a leprous, impure, unwhole person because of my sin. But Christ, because of who he is and what he has done, has made me whole. He has taken blood of his own sacrifice and washed me whiter than snow. Right? He has purified me. He has purified me. So it tells us in Hebrews, now come boldly to the throne of grace. Welcome into worship because Christ has reversed the curse that stood over us. Now we have a new kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom we long for in him. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We pursue holiness in the Lord. Why? Because he has already cleansed us, purified us, and made us whole. So now we pursue after him in holiness. Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 was teaching the people of Israel what it meant to follow God in everyday life, dealing with sin and the effects of sin. God has taught us what it means to follow him every day because Jesus has already dealt with sin and the effects of sin. So now we pursue after him in holiness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God is good in every place. And sometimes we recognize the difficulty that we see it in time, place, and all these other things. But God, it's not difficult to understand that we were once unclean and you have made us clean in Christ. We were once unworthy and you have made us worthy to enter into worship because of what Jesus has done. So Father, we pray that we'll pursue after you in every way in light of who you are and what you've done for us. You've redeemed us, you've saved us. God, may we be holy as you are holy. Set us apart for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. Thank y'all so much.